Okay, so I will go ahead and get started. So today we are talking about the rise and threat of Islam. You can't really talk about the history of Christianity without talking about our main rival. Our main rival is not atheism. It's not secularism, although it feels like that's our main rival in our country. But historically, Christianity's biggest rival after paganism was, for the most part, pushed out of society. The next big threat was Islam, because it's a counterfeit religion that tries to make some of the same claims. But in addition to that, it's a religion of the sword. And so it interacted with Christianity because it tried to conquer um, pretty much the whole world, and that's going to bring it into into contact with all these uh, these groups I've been talking about up to this point. And so, just introducing this, the Islamic faith from its beginning to now has always been the greatest and political the greatest political and military threat to Christianity. I don't think it's the greatest like worldview or ideological threat because when you really examine Islam and its core claims. It's got nothing on Christianity, philosophically, theologically, but politically, and just in terms of their their military mentality, yeah, it's it's a problem. And it's also been the greatest challenge to our missionaries, because here's the problem. When you try to convert Muslims, that carries the death penalty. A lot of places you go, you know, you might get beat or run out of town, you get killed there. And anybody you convert, they kill if they find out about it. So historically that has made it a lot more difficult and that's why our slowest missionary growth has always been in Islamic countries. Now the religion was founded by what they call the prophet, the prophet Muhammad. He was born in 570, he died in 632. So he was born roughly 600 years after the time of Christ. Uh, Now What I just said, Islamic apologists will push back on. They'll say Muhammad did not found Islam. Islam's the original religion of Adam and Abraham and David and Jesus, but it got tweaked or messed up, and so Muhammad was the final prophet who comes and fixes it. Now, historically, that is an impossible claim, but every Muslim believes that. Um, No historian does, but Muslims believe that. Uh, No, Islam was new. The things that Muhammad taught were never taught before him. You can't find any evidence of this going back before this time, but same with Mormonism, right? Joseph Smith claims Mormonism is is the true form of Christianity, um, and all the other forms just got corrupted, and so he's restoring what was original. The problem is you can't find anything he says predating him, which means he made it up. Well, a lot of the same stuff with, uh, with Muhammad. Now, again, as I said, it poses a a military threat and political threat because they attempt to conquer the world by means of war. This is going to bring them into a full collision with both Eastern and Western Christianity, and we cannot underestimate the impact this will have on the church. And so the way I'm going to uh, cover this is we're going to talk about Islam's early history, then we're going to talk about its doctrine, Then we're going to talk about its interaction with Christianity because at the end of the day, this is a church history course. So let me first begin then with the life of Muhammad. He was born in a violent polytheistic Arab culture. Think of Saudi Arabia, but back then it was Arabia. That's where he was born. And it was polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. It was violent, and it had a lot of different tribes. They were not united. They spent a lot of time fighting each other. They were good warriors, but they were always fighting each other. Now, 
talking about him, his personal life. It was one of tragedy. His dad died right before he was born. So he was raised by a single mother, but she died when he was six years old. And so then he was passed on to his grandfather, who died two years later when he was eight years old. And then for the rest of his life, he, well, not life, but of his young, up until his young adulthood, he lived with his uncle Abu and, uh, until he gets married. Now, Abu was a wealthy businessman. He was a merchant. He operated a successful caravan that would travel from Arabia up to Palestine, which is Israel. Um, but at this point, it was called Palestine because the Romans renamed it. Um, but he would travel up to what we call Israel, uh, to Syria, to Persia. And so he's coming in contact with Jews, Christians, Zoroastrians, and stuff like that. And, and to, to, it's worth noting, right, that the Arabian world was pagan. It was religiously pagan. They worshipped many gods. But there was a strong Jewish economic presence. Some of the best businessmen in Arabia were Jews, and they got along with the Arabs fine before Muhammad. Um, and then you had a lot of Christians scattered there, but these were monophysites and Nestorians, the folks I've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. So they did not represent Orthodox Christianity. And those are going to be the Christians that Muhammad comes in contact with. So when he has ideas about what's wrong with Christianity, keep in mind, his experience with it is with those who weren't Orthodox. Um, and so my point with this, though, is Muhammad was widely exposed to both Judaism and various forms of Christianity. When I was in high school, I had some close friends that were Muslims, and they would ask me, you know, this was their uh, defense. They would say, you know, how could have Muhammad known about Judaism and Christianity since he was in Arabia, unless God revealed it to him? And of course, I was 17. I didn't know this stuff. But couple, after a couple years of college, I'm like, oh, duh. It's because the man worked for his uncle's caravan. He traveled all over that area. He knew a whole bunch of Christians and Jews, and that's where he learned about this stuff. It's not that God magically told him about these religions that he never heard of. No, he was well acquainted with them. Um, and he will engage in a lot of uh, uh, religious conversations with these folks. Now, there were also, it's worth mentioning, some Arab monotheists. Remember, monotheism is belief in one God. They weren't all pagans. There were some monotheists that were neither Jewish or Christian, but they were influenced by them. They're like, you know what? Those Jews and those Christians, they have to be right. If there's a God, there's only one. We don't know that much about them. We're not going to become Jews. We're not going to become Christians, but we're going to worship one God. Muhammad at some point became one of these before he invented a religion. Okay, so at first he was one of these Arab monotheists, and then when he was 25 years old, he marries a 40-year-old rich widow named Khadijah. Um, so she was quite a bit older than him. He has three sons with her, but all of his sons die. So Muhammad was a guy who a lot of bad stuff happened in his life. You kind of feel sorry for him in that sense. Now, after his three sons died, he became deeply religious and he would go to the caves around Mecca and meditate, trying to hear from God. Uh, and, and Mecca was the capital of Arabia. So he's there. He hasn't started his new religion yet. He's just a sad guy, you know, meditating in the caves, trying to understand more about God. And then comes his revelations. In the year 610, he began, so he was 40. He says he began to receive his revelations. Now, I'm going to tell you the way that Islam describes these episodes matches 
the medical description of epilepsy, and it matches the biblical description of demon possession. It just does. Like he would fall to the ground in convulsions. He would foam from his mouth. Um, those are not things that you normally see with Old Testament prophets or Jesus or the apostles. Okay? In fact, you see this happen one time in the Gospels where a guy falls down in a convulsion and foams from the mouth. He was demon-possessed, and Jesus cast the demon out. That's how Islam describes Muhammad getting his revelations, the way the Bible describes demon possession. So for what it's worth, I think that kind of gives us the answer of what was going on. Now, at first, Muhammad believed these were demonic attacks. He's like, this can't be from God. But his wife, Khadijah, said, no, you're a good guy and you're seeking God, this is God giving you the answers. And so he was about to discard it as I'm demon-possessed, but then his encouraging wife, (laughs) I guess you could say in this case, um, through her encouragement, and I mean, we want wives to encourage husbands, but in this case, they're going to unleash hell on this world. (laughs) Because he's going to say, okay, maybe this is coming from God. And The messenger that was speaking to him claimed to be the angel Gabriel. And he said, this is God's number one angel. He's the main messenger. And so for the next 22 years, Muhammad's going to be receiving these revelations. The angel tells him to recite. Okay, he tells him to recite because he can't write. Muhammad's illiterate. So he's just to recite again and again um, these revelations. And again, as he got these revelations, they always bore those symptoms of those epileptic seizures or demon possession. Now, he's told to recite, which was later his disciples before he died wrote it down. He's like, all right, I'm going to die. You need to write this down. And so he, uh, he speaks it, they write it down, and that becomes their holy book, the Koran. The Koran is comprised of surahs. I believe it's 116, but I might be wrong on that number, but that's their chapters. Okay, so it, it, it's a certain amount of surahs. Now, Muhammad, after, as he was getting these revelations, and by the way, he gets them for decades. He claims that he is in a sense, a new and final prophet of the original religion of God. And it's called Islam. The word Islam means to submit. Submit to who? He would say God. And a Muslim, the word Muslim means one who submits. So if you ever wondered, you know, what those words mean, Islam means submission. Muslim means one who submits. And he's like, this is the original religion. And, um, and his job is to come as the final prophet to restore the one religion of the one true God. Now, what we see happen when you read the Quran is in a haphazard manner, he blends Jewish and Christian ideas with certain Arabic ones, and it doesn't work too well. But to the Arab people, eventually it did convince them. Initially, his new religion was not well received. Okay, so he goes to Mecca and he starts trying to say all these gods that you worship are wrong. The one true God is Allah. And uh, the people of Mecca are like, you know what? Because we respect your wife, because she was rich, and because we respect your uncle, we're not going to kill you. But his wife died, and then his uncle died. And so the people of Mecca are like, we're going to kill you. And so he flees. He's going to flee to uh, the city of Yathrib. And this moment in his life is called the Hijra, which means the, um, the fleeing or the, the migration uh, flight. It's the flight. And it's the official start date of the Islamic calendar. So on our Christian calendars, we say it's 2023. That's not what they say. Their first year starts, I believe it was, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember, but it was, it was once he had to flee 
to uh, Yathrib, over 200 miles north of Mecca. Now, once he's in Yathrib, he becomes a very successful man because he was politically shrewd. They weren't trying to kill him there. And he's going to successfully mediate disputes between all the, the tribal leaders because they're always at each other's throat and, uh, and stuff like that. And so he's going to be like, well, let me be the mediator. I'll arbitrate between you guys. I'll arbitrate between you guys. And then what he's going to do to link them, he's like, all right, tell you what. You guys don't want to marry uh, your daughters off with each other. It's okay. I got it blocked. Yeah. So he's, he's like, you guys don't want to, you know, marry your daughters off to each other. Marry your daughters off to me. And then if everybody, if I'm related to every leader in this city, then the city could be united because I'm the neutral third party. So he then brings together these people who are constantly at each other's throat, unites them all through marriage under himself, and he emerges as the leader of the city. And, and he convinced them all, like, the reason he was able to do this is because of Islam. And so that city of Yathrib becomes the first Islamic city, and it is renamed Medina, which is the second holiest site in Islam. Medina means <laughs> city of the prophet. It's an, it's an Arabic word. Um, so that's what, that's what happens there. Um, and just to kind of let you know how many, after, um, after Khadijah dies, Muhammad married 12 other women. And even after marrying 12 women, he still had no surviving sons. So in the Arab world, I mean, that, that would kind of look like, man, this guy's kind of cursed. Um, now, he married these women for political reasons. And, and, and he ended up getting social power. So it's reasonable, and I know Muslims would get mad at this, but it's reasonable to suggest maybe he married Khadijah for political reasons as well because she was rich. Although he was loyal to her until she died, he got something out of it. Why do you think he can meditate in caves all day? She was rich. Um, but uh, once she dies and then he becomes the big shot in Medina, um, he marries 12 other women, and that's how he keeps... Um, these people loyal to him. Um, now, one of the marriages, and I do got to say this, one of the marriages is very troubling. It was He married the daughter of his best friend, Abu Bakr, and it's a disturbing marriage. He said this was his favorite wife. This is the only wife that he gained nothing socially from, right? Like she wasn't rich or anything like that, but but she was nine years old, and he consummated his marriage with her when she was nine years old. And this was his favorite wife. So that tells you a lot about the Prophet Muhammad. Not only does he marry a bunch of women to become politically powerful, but he also was a pedophile. He just was. There's, there's no way getting around that. Um, so while he's in Medina, although he has total power over the Arabs, he's going to run into conflict with Jews and Christians there. Now, at first, he thinks they're going to enthusiastically accept his religion since he's taking ideas from their religions. He's claiming to be a prophet in their same kind of tradition. And, uh, and he thinks he could, by using uh, aspects of Judaism and Christianity, that he's going to be able to bring them all under him. It doesn't work. Now, while he's trying to convince them, this is the part of the Koran where he makes a lot of favorable statements about Jews and Christians. They're the people of the book, you know, and, and all that. And, and I think this was, in my opinion, 
He was trying to flatter them and attempt to win them over to Islam. There's one thing you have to understand when it comes to the surahs, the chapters of the Quran, they weren't all written at the same time. They weren't all revealed to him at the same time. And so the early ones that were in Medina are always really nice. They're peaceful. And when you go to liberal American universities and they try to describe Islam, they almost always focus on those. But when Muhammad is the full master over all of Arabia and he's ruling from Mecca, those surahs that are written at that time are no longer nice. Jews and Christians must convert by the point of the sword kind of thing. Jews will be eradicated and they'll be turned into monkeys and pigs. That all comes, you know, later once he has power. At this point, he's trying to win them over. So from, I guess you could say it's a cynical outlook, but I see no other way to see it here. He's trying to win them here. He's flattering them. When he can't win them, then he's not going to be so flattering anymore. Um, Now, he did claim, and he thought this would help win them over, that God, or Allah, which just means the God in Arabic, is that his previous revelation is the Torah, the Psalms of David, and the Gospels of Jesus. And then he says, but the Koran's added at the end, and that's the final one, the one that that seals it all off. Um, So, what happens with this? The Christians and Jews rejected him as a prophet. He became very upset with them, and that's why his later revelations are going to not be so nice. And he'll encourage their killing if they won't convert. And the group that offended him the most were the Jews. You know, one thing about Jews at this time is the Talmud had already been developed, um, especially in Babylon. The Jews love arguing. That's why, you know, I know it's stereotypical, but this is a favorable stereotype, so I'm going to say it. There's a reason we Jews make good lawyers. And part of it is in the construction of the Talmud, Every single, all 613 laws of Moses were taken, and then multiple arguments were made around each one. And everybody who was going to be a rabbi had to memorize all the major arguments for all 613. And they'd have to be able to argue any one of the positions at any time, even if they held a different one. Okay, so when you have that kind of like legal mindset, you're going to be kind of sharp at this. And when they started debating Muhammad, they made a fool out of him. Um, they would spot the contradictions in what he said. They would ridicule him. They were very, uh, very condescending to him. They also brought up the point that our prophets prophesied. Where's your prophecies? Our prophets perform miracles. Where's your miracles? And so, of course, Muhammad conveniently gets a revelation from Allah that says he's not permitted to do any miracles or give prophecies. So you have a prophet who does no miracles and gives no prophecies, but... You're still supposed to believe in him. Again, it just, yeah. So he didn't really like them. <laughs> and later, when he gets full power over Arabia, one of the last things he does is he carries out an annihilation of the Jews in the Arabian Peninsula, where they will be wiped out. Um, whereas before him, they got along with the Arabs just fine. Now, after that, He's going to unify the Arabs, but he has to conquer the capital. He has to conquer Mecca. Um, And so after his position was secure, now Medina is smaller than Mecca. He can't just do an all-out, straight-up, you know, frontal assault on them. So what he does is he starts attacking their caravans to hurt their economy and to steal their money. 
Um, and eventually that's going to just make them mad and then it's going to draw them out to fight against him. Well, now he gets to fight a defensive war and over the course of many years pick them off slowly until he has a force big enough and he has them weakened enough to where with an army of uh, 10,000 soldiers, he will then in the year 630 conquer Mecca and make it the capital of Islam. Now, there was a temple there, an ancient temple called the Kaaba. And uh, in it were worshipped a lot of idols. Uh, and, and he had all those idols removed. And it became kind of like their version of a temple. And only Allah could be worshipped there. And there's a picture of it. Now, no Muslims allowed to go there, look at it, set foot inside of it. Um, from what I've heard, there's this special magical looking rock. It's likely just a very beautiful meteorite. And... Um, their story is that that stone was found by Adam, that God sent that stone from the heavens, and then Adam found it, built this, this Kaaba around it, and then, of course, it found a disrepair, and then later Abraham and his true son Ishmael rebuilt it, and that's what it's supposed to be. Now, there's no historical evidence for any of that, but that is theologically what they believe. Now, once he uh, takes over Mecca, he's going to forge the... Arabian society into one real nation under Islam. All the tribes now are one with him on the top. It's a theocracy with him more or less as the king, just without the title of king. Um, and here's the thing. You got to understand, these guys had been fighting each other forever. Now they're united and they got all this pent up. We got to fight somebody. If you could take that now that they're all united and turn it outward, you're going to have a formidable enemy. And, and that's exactly what's going to happen. So now the world has to face this very unique army. Not only were they bold and tough, but this was one army that was sober. They were sober, like that's unheard of. They, in Islam, you cannot drink alcohol at all. And so this was a tough army. This was a sober army. And this was an army where the soldiers were not afraid of death. So when you have guys who are tough, sober, they're already a warrior group. And they don't drink. That's one thing. But then you add to it that they're not afraid of dying. Now, why aren't they afraid of dying? In Islamic theology, okay, there is no guarantee. You could obey the Quran as well as you can, but there's no guarantee you're going to be saved. You don't know if you're one of God's elect until the very end time. There's one way you could assure that you're saved, dying as a martyr. And so if you really believe this and you don't want to spend forever in hell and you want the sensuous delights that he promises those the, the people in heaven are going to get, then one way to guarantee it is become a soldier and die for the cause. And so you got these guys not afraid of death. And yeah, they're going to be a, a, a tough army to deal with. Now, there's going to be certain factors that help them as they conquer so much. In fact, I would say this. Had Islam been founded 50 years earlier, history would have turned out very differently and they would not have made it outside of Arabia. Okay? There's other factors that open the door for them. Now, that's not to take away from their toughness. These were tough guys. But, but remember, the Byzantine Empire by this point was badly split along geographical lines. The Monophysites, if you remember, of Egypt and Syria... And then you could even add Armenia wanted to be independent from the Byzantines. They saw the Byzantines as overlords that they wanted to be free of. And the Byzantines kept them under control, kept forcing the Chalcedonian orthodoxy on them. And so they, they, they weren't loyal 
And guess what? They are the closest periphery. They're on the periphery, the eastern border of the Byzantine Empire, right next to Islam. And they're going to welcome them as liberators, not invaders. Had that not been the case, Islam would not have been able to push into the Byzantine Empire so easily. Now, the second factor is the Persian Empire was finally destroyed in 628. Around 611, the Persians came in and conquered half of Byzantium. But then the Byzantines made the comeback, gained all their land back, went all the way to Nineveh and destroyed the Persian Empire. But the Byzantines couldn't stay there. They were stretched too thin, so their armies had to go back. Now, the Persian Empire, the Parthian Empire, was the powerhouse from Iraq and Iran all the way over to Afghanistan and even parts of India. They were destroyed. So there's a vacuum there. They were destroyed in 628. Remember that number in mind because the Muslims start their conquest just six years after that. Okay, so you got this, this vacuum there. Had the Persians still been in power and had the Byzantines been a united empire where the Monophysites would rather be part of them than uh, independent of them, then things would have been different. You would have had Byzantines on the periphery trying to fight the Muslims hard and you would have had Persians who would have stopped them in the north. But you didn't have that. So a door was wide open for these guys to come in and take a lot of land all at once. Um, so, yeah, Islam's not going to have a difficult time claiming the Middle East. They're just not. It's going to be very easy for them. And then from those gains, they're going to be able to use that momentum from that and start wreaking havoc elsewhere. So let me talk about their conquests. And by the way, this picture of the Dome of the Rock was taken with my very own cell phone. You know, so I was there uh, in March, and so I didn't have to take this one off of uh, Google Images. Um, it's just cool to set foot on that flat ground where the Temple Mount once stood, and now that's there. But anyhow, um, so Muhammad dies as master of Arabia in 632. His successor, and I'm going to, let me just say this now. When Muhammad dies, the office of Muhammad passes to what is called a successor, which the word is caliph. And then caliph becomes caliphate. That's what we would call their, their rulers, the caliphate. Okay, so first it passes to his best friend, Abu Bakr, who gave him his favorite nine-year-old daughter, or gave him his, his daughter as his favorite wife. It's a nine-year-old. Well, so Muhammad dies in 632. Abu Bakr now rules the Muslims till 634. But they can't start fighting yet because, of course, this is predictable. As soon as Muhammad dies, a lot of the Arabs that were united tried to break free. And Abu Bakr has to spend his two years with more infighting to once and for all get all Arabs united. By the time he dies, they're united and they're ready to take their fighting outside. Okay, now that's 634. Now, in 635, the next year, the Muslims besiege and capture Damascus. Okay, that's just one year later. Three years after Muhammad's dead, they take the capital of Syria. In 637, they take Jerusalem. And that's where eventually the commission to build the Dome of the Rock is going to be built. And there's a reason it looks like that. That is a Greek basilica. And they're trying to make it look like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. They wanted it to be a little bigger and a little higher. And it is. Um, but anyhow, and I got a picture later that kind of shows both of them in angulation to each other. And you can see they're, they're modeled very similar. But 637, they took Jerusalem. That's just four years after Muhammad died. Or no, uh, five years after Muhammad died, excuse me. 638, the next year, they take Antioch, Caesarea, and 17 other Syrian cities. For all 
practical purposes, they had Syria at this point. And remember, the Syrian monophysites were not fighting them, which made it a lot easier. There was some fighting, but not much. Most of their fighting was against the Byzantine troops that were stationed there. But the locals weren't really helping them. Okay, by 639, they had all of Syria under their control. In 640, the Muslims then invade Egypt, and it only takes them a year to take Alexandria. Why? Because the Egyptians were monophysites as well. And so again, you don't have the locals supporting the army. Um, They welcome these invasions. And again, the Muslims would not have conquered these lands so easily if the Syrians and Egyptians did not feel disloyal and alienated from the Byzantines. I mean, this was the Byzantine Empire that destroyed the Persian Empire. Had it been a united empire, they probably could have stopped Islam in their tracks. But it was not meant to be. Because of these easy conquests, I want you to think about this. Three of the great patriarchates of the five, three of the five, were now under Islamic control. Remember, five main cities of Christianity. Jerusalem, Alexandria, Antioch, Rome, and Constantinople. Well, three now gone. There's only two left. And this is within a couple, this is, this is within eight years, eight years of Muhammad dying. And pretty much three of the five major Christian cities done. All that's left now are Rome and Constantinople in terms of patriarchates. So that lets you know how big of a dent um, the Muslims are putting into Christendom. And again, that's within nine years of Muhammad's death. Nine years. And so let me talk more. Next, they go to Persia. Well, actually, they went to Persia a year before they went to Egypt. The Muslims invaded the Persian lands, which was an easy victory because the Persian power was shattered 11 years earlier. You know, there's all these what-ifs. I used to have a history professor who would always say, what if the D-Day invasion failed? And he wants you to imagine what history would have been like. Then one of my other professors is like, that's dumb. It's not what-if happened. What did happen? We won, you know. So I'm going to play this what-if game, though. What if the Byzantines, rather than destroying the Persian power, fought them to a stalemate and said, hey, let's just leave each other alone, and then Persia was still solid? This might have ended up different. But it wasn't meant to be. Eleven years of a power vacuum there, the Arabs were able to just walk right into it. And from there, they were able to stretch immediately to the furthest Persian territory, which was Afghanistan and then in northern India. Now, there's going to be some fighting they have to do. And they won't get total control until the 700s, the early 700s, which would be the early 8th century. So, you know, we're talking, you know, 60 years or so. But still, they got far very fast. And the Muslims then think to themselves, let's use this momentum. We've got the Persian Empire. We're all the way to India. We've got uh, Egypt. We've got Syria. They've pushed the Byzantines halfway into Turkey, or what we call Asia Minor, if you look at this map. They're like, let's take this momentum. Let's finish them off once and for all. There's only one way to finish them off. We've got to take the heart of the empire, which is Constantinople. And then it's over. So, of course, they start by using their navy. The Muslim fleet defeats and captures the Mediterranean islands, the most notable being Cyprus. Um, And they do that by 648. And then the whole southern part of Asia Minor. So think of the churches of Galatia. They're now taken over by Muslims. And that's by 651. And then they took Armenia by 651. And so now they're like, let's go after the heart of Constantinople. First thing we have to do is destroy their fleet, and they almost do. They destroy most of their ships. 
these Muslims are unstoppable. At this point, up to 655, this is um, 23 years after Muhammad died, they have not lost yet. Everything they do, they keep winning. Now, and of course, they're thinking this is fulfilling Muhammad's predictions. Um, but the bottom line is, I've told you the reasons why they were so successful at first. Their goal next is to strike the death blow by taking Constantinople. But this is where they're going to lose. This is where they're going to get their first setback, and they're going to lose bad. Um, and so the land and sea forces together, it's a combined naval and, and army operation. They besieged Constantinople for five straight years, 673 to 678, but they lose. This was their first defeat, total failure. Um, and one reason was because of this new technology that only the Byzantines had called Greek fire. You may have heard of it. I got some pictures of it here. It's like a blowtorch. You know, it's a blowtorch spitting out fire that sets their ships on fire or sets their soldiers on fire. It was a chemical compound, sort of like napalm, but not the same. You set somebody on fire with this, how are they going to try to put it out? With water, right? When you throw water on Greek fire, it gets hotter and burns you quicker and you die faster. So this was the nuclear bomb of medieval warfare, and the Byzantines were the only ones who had it. And so when the Muslims got close to Constantinople, wasn't going to happen. A lot of their navy got burned. A lot of their soldiers got burned. They just could not breach these walls. And then this giant storm off the coast of Pamphylia destroyed the rest of their fleet. So they lost their navy. They're losing some soldiers due to... Um, uh, the, the Greek fire. And so then what's going to happen is uh, Constantine the fourth, who reigns 668 to 685, he's going to take advantage of the Muslim weakness as they're backing off. He's going to bring his Byzantine army out of Constantinople. And there's going to be a, a decisive battle where the Byzantines actually annihilate the whole Muslim army. They destroy them. And so now the Muslims can't conquer them. Now the Byzantine army's not big enough anymore to then go and retake all that land back. But they stopped the Muslims in their tracks. They could not go any further in the east. And this was at the Battle of Cilium in 678. And by the way, Constantine the, the Fourth is going to play a big role in the iconoclastic controversy. And he's the one who calls the Third Council of Constantinople, which, which settles that. So think about it. While all that stuff's going on, you also have this going on. And by the way, so I don't forget... What, the, like, some of the emperors at this time were against icons and were persecuting Christians in the empire that were for icons. And some of them made the argument, why is God letting the Muslims win so much? Because they don't have idols. And so God's letting us be punished. We need to destroy our idols or our icons. Um, but even as they destroyed the icons, it didn't stop the Islamic invasions. It was actually a, a pro-icon guy that stops them, um, you know, at this battle. So the point is, Islam's eastern conquests were halted, and uh, Constantinople is going to last until 1453. Um, so they're not going to be able to take that from them. Eventually, they'll edge in closer and closer, and they'll have all of Turkey. The only thing that will be left is Constantinople. But it's going to last until the creation of cannons. That's the only way. When, they, when, um, when uh, Suleiman makes a strong enough cannon a big cannon, and he had to experiment a lot, then he was able to knock those walls down. But until then, uh, Constantinople was going to stay independent. <clears throat> so that's where they get halted in the east. Now, they're at the same time trying to take the west. They're trying to take Europe. In the west, Muslim advances will continue for decades after the eastern setback. 
Um, from Egypt, they invaded West Africa. So from Alexandria, they're going to go to like Carthage and all those areas where the Berbers were at in West Africa, and they're going to encounter fierce resistance. The Berbers are going to fight them hard, savagely, for 50 years, but eventually they convert them. Not sure how it worked, but they converted them. And once the Berbers converted to Islam, they became zealous Muslim soldiers themselves that were now ready to fight for the cause of Islam. And what they're going to do is they're going to cross from North Africa, across the, the Strait of Gibraltar, which is not far, and going to go right up into Spain. And when they go into Visigothic Spain in 711, they're not going to meet much resistance. By 718, just seven years later, they conquered all of Spain, except for the northern coastlands. You know, in Spain, it has like, it's kind of like, it's a peninsula that looks like a box, and part of the box is facing north. That's the only part they still kept. Otherwise, the Muslims had all of it. And then they're going to push up deep into France. If they would have taken France, they would have taken the rest of Europe. There would have been no Western Christianity, just to let you know. It all comes down to one battle, a battle called the Battle of Tours, where Charles Martel, and I've talked about him a couple weeks ago, he was the Frankish mayor of the Merovingian Empire, but he was the Carolingian. And so he was the mayor representing the Merovingians. He united all the Franks. Frank, anyway, he united all the Franks. And then they defeated the Muslims and pushed them out of France all the way back into Spain, and they were never able to get back into France. If you remember, Charles was Pepin's dad and Charlemagne's grandfather. So that's who, that's who this guy was. And there's a reason why their family is going to be very esteemed. They stopped the Islamic conquest, and they're going to be the ones who, in a sense, set up the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, so permanently stops the Muslim expansion, and then it, the Muslims are now stuck in Spain, and they're going to be there 700 years. That's why so much Spanish architecture is uh, Islamic, and there's a lot of uh, Arab roots in Spain. And, and so, and by the way, and I'm going to mention this again later, but the Berbers who were in Spain and conquered it for this, those 700 years, we call them Moors. If you ever wondered where the, the word Moor came from, referring to the North African Muslims, Azim or Morgan Freeman's character in um, the Kevin Costner, Robin Hood, you know, he would have been a Moor, a Berber. Um, but, but anyhow, we just call him Morgan Freeman. But anyhow, they're going to maintain control in Spain until 1492. 1492 is when Ferdinand of, of, of Aragon and Castile ends up kicking them out. Your brother's Ferdinand, right? Yeah, ends up kicking them out. And by the way, do you guys remember what else this king and his wife are famous for? Commissioning Columbus... 1492, right? Same, same thing. So that's how long they're there. Once the Muslims get kicked out, that is when um, the whole Columbus explorations are going to be authorized. So Islam had a very successful run of their conquest. They only met their, I guess you could say, the, the stopping point with the Franks and then with Constantinople. Afterwards, Islamic unity is going to be fractured. Some of the fracturing started early on. Um, Muslims will tell you they're a united religion. We Christians have all these denominations, but they don't. Um, but it's not true. They do have denominations. They got two main ones. And within those two main ones, it splinters into even more varieties. Um, you know, so 
Either way, it doesn't really matter how many denominations, but their unity gets broken. Um, the third caliph, Uthman, and he's the one that gave us the current version of the Quran we have. Muslims will often say that you Christians have all these variations in your manuscripts, but the Quran, we have no variations. They're all the same. Well, that's because Uthman, the third caliph, ordered on pain of death all copies of the Quran to be brought in. He handpicked which version he wanted, and then all the rest were burned. So, I mean, that's not a good argument on their part, because now we'll never know what the other one said. You know, somebody could theoretically do that today if they had all government power, and they said, I want to collect all Bibles and manuscripts except the ESV, and he burns them all, and we could say, we've only got one manuscript tradition, the ESV. It doesn't prove anything. But anyhow, the third caliph, Uthman, he gets uh, murdered. And so then the Muslims will divide into two parties. One party says that the next caliph and all subsequent caliphs should be dis, uh, descendants of, of Muhammad. So Muhammad's nephew, Ali, married Muhammad's daughter, Fatima, and had sons. And so Ali should be the caliph, and then when he dies, it should go to the sons because they would be direct in the lineage of Muhammad. And so these guys are eventually going to be called the Shiites or the Shia party, thinking that, uh, that the Islamic community, it's essential that you have a leader descended from Islam. The other party disagreed. They were called the Sunnis. And they believed that it, it doesn't just have to, you don't have to have somebody related to Muhammad. Okay? Instead, the people should elect the caliph or whoever the current caliph should appoint his own successor. To maintain unity, you just need the Quran. An accurate hadith, hadith are like um, sayings of the prophet that aren't in the Quran, but people supposedly kept his sayings. And so if you have an accurate hadith, which by the way, there's a lot of different competing hadiths, but if you have an accurate hadith, a Quran, and then an imja, which is the consensus of the consensus of the community, that is all you need to have a united Islam. And so the caliphs don't have to be descended from Muhammad. Well, this disagreement led to a, a brief civil war. Ali's party won, and he became the fourth caliph. But his opponent, Muawiyah, wanted that position, so he for a while, built up his strength, built up his army, and then when he felt he could take over, he had Ali assassinated. And then he becomes the fifth caliph, Muawiyah. And what happens with that is under the reign of Muawiyah's son, by the way, Muawiyah was the one that signs a treaty with Constantine IV. After the Muslims lose at Constantinople, they sign a treaty. Constantine IV and Muawiyah sign a treaty where they both recognize each other's territory. This is that guy, right? Well, eventually he dies, and then his son becomes the next caliph, and the Shiites revolted. And it was a tough revolt, but the Sunnis won, and they massacred all of Ali's family. So they're like, hey, this will put an end to the Shia stuff. Just kill Ali and all of his family. Um, I mean, his, he was already dead, but kill all the rest of his family. All this did was secure a permanent division between the two parties. Today, Shia is a minority. They're about 15%, and they're dominant in Iran. So Iran's kind of a radical group, right? They're all Shia. You go there, that's the majority, even though in Islam itself it's a minority. So because you got these two parties and you have a big chunk, like the Persian area was taken over by these guys, that fractures the Islamic 
unity in their empire. It was weakened even more when Muslim Spain broke away in 756. Although they were Sunni, the Moors realized, like, you know what? We don't need to be taking orders from Baghdad. We could do our own thing. And they're going to have their own unique form of Islam. It's going to be a lot nicer. And it's going to get along with the Europeans a lot better than some of the other forms. But Spain was a big territory that they had. That breaks away from the rest. So Persia is in the ninth century. Shia Persia will gain independence. That'll be in the 800s. and the 700s, Spain already got independence. And then based on this, uh, uh, the success of this, Morocco, Tunisia, and Libya, pretty much all the Berber territories, the Moorish territories, they did the same. So now Islam's not this one empire anymore. It's fractured into states. In the 10th century, which is the 900s, Egypt does the same. The, the crown jewel, in a sense, breaks away from the Islamic caliphate as well. And so they will be another independent Muslim kingdom. This fracturing of Islam is what makes it possible in the next century for the Western Christians to come in and try to take it all back with the Crusades. And they do take it all back and hold a lot of it for a while. Um, now, the Muslims get really mad about this. How dare you invade us? But Christians would say, you invaded us first. What, they, what are you talking about? You guys are the ones who left Arabia, took all this stuff from Christians. If the Frankish empires want to take it back, you know, leave us alone. We're just doing what you did. But there's a reason. See, that sounds fair, right? In politics, you conquer us for a while. We come back, we conquer you later. Stop your whining. But in Islam, there's a theological aspect to this. They are not technically, theologically able to lose any land. Once they put their flag somewhere, it is said to belong to Islam forever. And even if it gets taken back, in their mind, it's still Islamic. And that's why they could perform terrorism and all that, because it's technically their country in their mind. And, and, and so to them, you can't lose what you got because Islam's supposed to take over the whole world. Um, so we would say it's fair. We want it back. They would say, no, it's ours forever once we got it, once we claimed it. And that's why they're so uh, determined in Israel. You know, you think about it. They turned the Holy Land into a dump for centuries. The Jews get it back. And within like 20, 30 years, it's blooming like an oasis and all that good stuff. But they're saying, no, we want to take it back and turn it back into a dump because we had our flag there at one point. And they'll never accept peace. That's why when all these foolish uh, Western liberals are like, we could have a, a peaceful solution there, you can't. Theologically, they cannot recognize Israel. They just can't because it would, it would mean that Islam lost and they can't admit that. But anyhow, so that covers the, the basic history of, of Islam up to right before the Crusades. Now I want to talk about the theology, just so you could know basically what they believe. This isn't like exhaustive, it's basic, but pretty much Islam has five dominant doctrines and then a sixth less emphasized one. First, they say there's only one God, Allah. Allah just means the God. Second, God sent many prophets to guide men, but Muhammad is the seal of the prophets, meaning he is the final one. Third, there are four inspired books, Torah, Psalms, Gospels, and Koran, but the Koran's the most important because it corrects the other ones. They believe that the Jews and Christians are people of the book, but they believe we corrupted our revelation and God had to send the Koran to fix it. And they also believe that the Koran is eternal. It was always written in heaven. And then this is just the earthly copy. Fourth, 
Islam focuses heavily on intermediary deities such as angels, demons, and jinn. And by the way, the word genie comes from jinn. It's a very complex angelology, and these jinn, they believed, were like these invisible creatures that could do good or evil. Um, and uh, you had to appease them with magic, and one form of it was genies. Um, fifth, they believe in the final day of judgment in which all men will be resurrected and sent either to heaven or hell based on works. Heaven is a place of sensuous delight for men, where they will be served by women for all eternity. And then sixth and less emphasized is the doctrine of hismet or fate. And in Islam, there's no free will. Fate is so pervasive that even like the blowing of a wind uh, or the blowing of the wind and how it moves a leaf down to the detail is decreed by God and all human decisions aren't actually made by us. It's all because of his decree. Now, some people try to compare this with Calvinism. You can't compare them. Calvinism is a form of compatibilism where we say, yes, God is sovereign over all that happens, yet he made us creatures who make decisions of which we are responsible. Now, he oversees and superintends it to where everything he decrees will come to pass, but in a way that does not violate our will. Um, and so I, I've always heard it this way, that if you had a, a you have a, a boat that has three Muslims in it and one Calvinist, and uh, one of the Muslims falls overboard and is drowning and is saying, help. And then the Christian looks at the other two Muslims, aren't you going to save them? And they'd be like, if it's, uh, if it's uh, all his will that he live, he lives. If it's all his will that he dies, he dies. And then the Christian starts taking his clothes off and they're like, what are you doing? If it's all his will, he lives, he lives. If it's all his will, he dies, he dies. And the Christian response, it's God's will that I jump in and save this guy. You know, that would be the difference, a big difference between uh, their view of fate and um, Reformed theology. Now, as far as their doctrines, well, those were their doctrines. There's five pillars as well. These are important works. Uh, first, a person must recite the Shahada, which is their creed. Their creed is there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. It was the worst advice I was ever given. When I was going through my basic training, and we're still in the thick of our war with Afghanistan and Iraq, and they told us, if you get captured, there's one way you could survive, and we're all like, what, what? And they told us to say this. Now, it wasn't an official army, you, you know, um, doctrine that they were telling us. This was just what our teachers were telling us. Like, hey, if you say the Shahada, they'll spare you. But you have to be a Muslim your whole life because then if you recant, they'll put a ban on you and kill you. It's like, I'd rather die, you know. But anyhow, that's, this is how you convert to Islam with the Shahada, that creed. They have to recite it. Second, they must pray five times a day facing Mecca. That's called the Salah. Third, they have to give alms, at least if they're in a position to. That's Zakah. Fourth, all Muslims have to observe the month-long fast of Ramadan. And then fifth, all able-bodied Muslims must make a pilgrimage at least once in their life um, to Mecca to go into the Kaaba and see it with their own eyes. That's called the Hajj. And you know how like in war, um, we've always come up with derogatory names for our enemies. In the war on terror, terror we called all Muslims Hajis. And so if you've heard that word, where, where it comes from, it just comes from this fifth one. They're all supposed to take the Hajj, and so they're like, oh, our enemies are the Hajis. 
not saying it's right, I'm just saying that's where the word comes from if you've ever heard it. Um, these five pillars demonstrate that Islam is a works righteous type of system of belief. Um, now there's a sixth less emphasized pillar which is called jihad and I'm sure you've heard of that. Jihad means holy war and it's an obligation for all Muslims against infidels. But I do need to talk about this for a second because Muslim apologists will claim that jihad primarily refers to the spiritual war in yourself. Like you have a will that wants to resist Allah, so you have to have the spiritual war in yourself, and that's called greater jihad. And that's true. But they cannot downplay lesser jihad, which is the Quran's command to make physical war on all non-Muslims because they have to win the world for Islam with the sword. It's very pervasive throughout Quran and the Hadiths, and even a minimal knowledge of world history, like what we're talking about today, can attest to the fact that Muslims historically interpreted jihad as a physical war, and they have tried to carry it out. And I remember when I was also going through that basic training as a chaplain, we had to attend religious services for all the different religions. And uh, that means we had to go to an Islamic service just to see what it was like. And when we went to it, the, the imam chaplain was, again, giving us the speech of, of it's spiritual jihad. It's not physical war. And he's given us the nice Islam of the West. And then there were Muslims in the worship service that raised their hand to debate him. And were quoting the Quran, telling them they're supposed to use terror and the sword to bring us uh, in, into, <laughs> into, into their fold. And it was interesting watching the army imams try to shut these guys down, you know, and so even in the midst of their worship service, there was a debate about this, even in the U.S. Army. It was just very interesting to see. They, they, they try to say that's only radical Islam, but all of Islamic history up to 100 years ago then was radical Islam by that definition. That's my point. That's my point. Today, when an imam claims that Muslims must defend themselves from a particular satanic threat, he could call for a holy war against that threat. It could be against a newspaper like Charlie Hebdo in, uh, in France, where they committed terrorist attacks against it for making satirical uh, comics that insulted Muhammad. This was a couple years ago. Or they could declare the threat to be a single person, and then they place a ban on that individual, which means all Muslims are charged with, if they have the opportunity, they must kill this man. The most famous example was Salman Rushdie. And this was something like back in the, the day, like in the 80s, he, he wrote a book that exposed that there were originally what is called the satanic verses in the Quran, where Allah allows the worship of like, I think, three other gods next to him. And this was an embarrassment. So it was removed from the Quran. This guy brings out these satanic verses. And so an imam puts a ban on him. This guy had to go into hiding for really the rest of his life. And I thought he was going to get away with it. And then what happened was just a few months ago in New York City, he got stabbed in the throat while giving a speech. They got him. I mean, he'd been successfully hiding for almost 40 years and his security had kept him safe. But then he's on the stage giving a speech and somebody runs up and stabs him in the throat. He lived. He's not dead as far as I could tell. But unless maybe he did, I don't know. I think he's still alive. But point is, that shows you that, no, this isn't radical Islam. This is just how it works. Now, some other Islamic doctrines. Salvation is determined by fatalism, as I said. It really comes down to just if he chose you, that's it. It doesn't matter, actually, what you do or what you believe. Um, 
they do have a devil. He's sometimes called Iblis, sometimes Shaitan, um, which would be the Arabic version of uh, Satan or Shatan in Hebrew. And uh, But their devil doesn't receive the same attention that our devil does. Um, and there's a lot of angels in Islam, but the chief one is Gabriel. He is the messenger of Allah. In terms of their eschatology, there's a lot of diversity, just like there is in Christianity. Um, many of them today are awaiting the 12th Imam, who they call the Mahdi. And the way they describe the Mahdi is very similar to how we describe the Antichrist, just to let you know. I find that to be fascinating. But anyhow... Um, there will be a final cataclysmic day when Allah is supposed to judge the world. A trumpet is sounded and all the heathen Arabs will be killed, the ones who have not submitted to Islam. And then at the end of life, there's this long and narrow bridge that's hard to balance on. And you don't know if you're going to make it until then, no matter how good of a Muslim you've been. Now, sinners will fall off. The elect will make it across. Those who fall off fall into hell because it's below the bridge, and you're going to burn forever there. Those who make it to the other side enjoy a sensuous eternal reward. First, there's a pool of wine that will never make you drunk, but always give you a buzz. So you'll forever be merry without ever being drunk. And to satisfy the lusts of men, there's a lot of earth women that will be your sex slaves, so it's really trafficking in their eternal state. And then there's heavenly virgins that always remain virgins that are meant for the pleasure of men. There's no such reward for women. There's not 72 studs for, you know, women Muslims that make it, you know, to the end. This is just for the dudes. And uh, so women have a clear second place in Islam, whereas in Christianity they're uh, elevated. Um, and so that gives you the basic doctrinal understanding of Islam. So what I want to talk about last is what it was like for Christians then, because this is a church history class, right? So you had to understand, this is the greatest threat to Christianity, militarily and politically. Um, so how did it affect Christianity besides just the loss of land? Well, let's pretend you're one of these Eastern Empire Christians or a Spanish Christian that is now under their rule. What happens to you? Well, first know this. The Muslims only forced Arabs to be Muslims. There's no choice. If you're an Arab and you denied it, you die. Okay? Uh, the people who were non-Arabs were allowed to keep their religion, but there would be consequences. So Persians were allowed to remain Zoroastrian, but there's going to be some, some heavy taxes. They'd be like worse than second-class citizens. Christians and Jews were allowed to be Christians and Jews, but they had to pay a heavy tax, and they were second-class citizens. Now, Muhammad considered them worshipers of Allah, so they were awarded a little better position, but there were also passages that authorized their killing, as I mentioned, that he wrote near the end of his life. Um, and so again, they, they, even though in many respects they would be left alone, if they were, they were second-class citizens, they were segregated, they had to be in their own ghettos. Uh, the Christians had to appoint a bishop that was responsible for them. The Muslims don't want to deal with Christians. Their government will deal with one guy representing them, a bishop. Now, any non-Muslim nation that was conquered or under an Islamic state, they were considered dehimi if they signed a treaty of surrender. Now, if you did not sign the treaty of surrender, you die. But if you're like, okay, is the Muslims one? Here's the Treaty of Surrender, Dahimi. Then you are now a protected second-class citizen. You had to pay an expensive poll tax. And if you're a Christian, you had to wear clothing that set you apart from the Muslims, much like the Germans did to the Jews in the 1930s. Very, very similar. 
Okay, that way you would, you would not have the same economic opportunities. You couldn't get the same jobs. In fact, Christians couldn't own swords or horses. They weren't allowed to have public processions where they carry crosses or icons. They could not ring bells anymore or beat drums to announce their worship services were starting. Christians were not allowed to marry Muslims. And it was illegal for them to evangelize Muslims. In fact, if any Muslim converts, it's an automatic death penalty. And if they could find the one who preaches to, preaches to them, it's also a death penalty. Penalty. This is why missionary activity has been so unsuccessful in Islamic countries. It's because they, their use of the sword is worse than the Roman Empire's was, um, or, or anybody else for that matter. That is why it is so hard to make progress in Islamic countries even to this day. Um, and for these reasons, the second-class citizens, the inability to evangelize, uh, the churches in Islamic lands over the centuries steadily shrunk and shrunk and shrunk until most of them disappeared. You think of all the churches you read in the book of Acts, none of them are still there. They're all either gone or replaced by a mosque. Um, it, it's sad. The seven churches of Revelation, they're ruins. You know, so that's, that's what happened. Uh, the majority of professing Christians convert to Islam because they want the benefits of citizenship. And then also you had a lot of, even if the state wasn't going after you, you had local persecutions. And, and so again, the Christians would dwindle and dwindle. And then the kids would wonder like, what's this all worth? You know, it's better just to go along with the, the culture. And so a lot of them would fall away. We're seeing with the pressure of the LGBT revolution in our country, a lot of the youth of the church are, are doing the same thing. Um, when, the, when the pressure's heavy and the Christians aren't making a compelling argument for Christianity anymore, that's what tends to happen. Um, now, it was, there were some Muslim leaders that made good use of Christians and Jews, uh, Jewish scholars. They had placed some of them in high positions. When the capital was moved to Baghdad in 750, the first principal of its university was a Nestorian Christian. And a lot of these Christians translated the Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle into Arabic, Arabic which then introduced Islamic Arabic culture uh, with the wisdom of, of ancient Greece, which is going to help civilize that society a lot more and make it a more sophisticated society with better mathematics, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. This is actually going to lead Islam to have their own cultural golden age. And then Europe is going to get its own cultural golden age off of Islam when these same ancient Greek and Roman ideas get filtered back into Europe through the Crusades. It's very interesting how it's a big boomerang. Um, now, the most outstanding Christian to work under Islamic rule was John of Damascus. He lived 675 to 749. He is called the last of the Greek church fathers. He was a profound and prolific theologian. In his young life, he was a minister of the Muslim caliph in Damascus. It was in Damascus before it moved to uh, Baghdad. Um, later, he quits all that. He becomes a monk in Islamic-controlled Jerusalem, and he writes his theological masterpiece called The Fountain of Knowledge. He deals with philosophy, heresy, and he puts together one of the best explanations of Chalcedonian Christology that has ever been written, uh, very influential in the Western church. What he does is he takes some of the best thinking on it, but he also adds the insights of Maximus the Confessor. So added to the, the, the two natures, you've got the two wills, and that's all explained very well. Also, John of Damascus was very big in convincing the, the Byzantines with his writings to accept icons. So very, uh, very prolific um, theologian. And one of his works 
made its way to Western Europe in the 1100s, much later. It's translated into Latin, but it actually gave the start and development of uh, Western systematic theology. Stems back to this guy. So, yeah, you did have uh, one prolific guy under Islamic control. Christians in Islamic Spain, it's going to be a little different. Once the Muslims break away from the Islamic Empire, they treat the Christians much better in Spain. Now, it wasn't great, but it was better. Bourbon Muslims in Spain, as I said, Moors, they were very tolerant to Christians and Jews, and their communities developed very well under their rule, meaning Christian and Jewish communities thrived in that Spain. Um, the only times the government cracked down is if the church criticized Islam or tried to convert Muslims. But the people who weren't Muslims, they could try to convert all they want. Um, and so relations were favorable to the point where the people who lived in Spain wanted the Arabic culture. They learned Arabic language. They translated Bibles into Arabic. They translated the church's liturgy into Arabic. They embraced these, uh, these Spanish, or I mean these and so there's a lot of Muslim culture that's baked into the cake of Spain even to this day. Um, you know, and it, and it was because of the relations between the Moors and the, the people who, who lived in Spain. Um, and it was also through Muslim Spain that the achievements of Eastern civilization, like Roman Greco wisdom, then found its way back into the Western Empire. Because a lot of these Goths were still uncivilized. They were as uncivilized as the Arabs were, but the Arabs got a hold of that old, you know, Eastern um, wisdom. And so then they became a flowering civilization, and it makes its way into Spain and then comes back to Europe. Again, full circle. Uh, Western Christian scholars often learn philosophy, mathematics, astronomy, and medicine from the Spanish Muslim schools. So, yeah, just a lot of... Uh, a lot of interesting stuff there. So the last thing I'm going to talk about, and then we'll be done, is the Christian response to Islam. So how did Christians respond? Well, you have two ways to resist, the pen or the sword. And in almost all cases, we say the pen is mightier than the sword, except when you're dealing with Muslims. Um, and by the way, if you're talking about conversion, the sword won't work. But if you're talking about stopping them from taking over and you know, putting the sword to your throat... Writing polemics doesn't work on Muslims. It works in Christian lands. It works in a lot of lands. Okay, so in Christian societies, writing the theological works would change minds. It would win debates. It would settle controversies. With Islam, the writings did not matter. The only way to halt Islam was with powerful Christian armies. That's just the reality of it. You're, you're not going to convince most of these guys by writing tomes. Um, and so if you want to stop them from coming into and conquering your, your land, then you have to have a strong military presence. But what I will say is there were some notable attempts in the Middle Ages by Christians to evangelize Muslims. And in this process, the church is actually going to create a decent stream of anti-Muslim arguments. Because uh, the Muslims are making their arguments against Christianity. And technically, Christians aren't allowed to talk back because they're criticizing Islam. You could be killed, but you know what? Some Christians are going to be like, you know what? Two could play, and they're going to have apologetics, and they're going to defend Christianity um, with both a positive and negative approach. The positive approach is, let me give you the reasons why we know Christianity is true, and the negative approach, let me show you why we know Islam isn't true. Now, the, the greatest 
uh, two apologists were John of Damascus. He was from the East. And then centuries later, Thomas Aquinas will probably make some of the best arguments against Islam. And keep in mind, Aquinas is writing at the tail end of the Crusades. So we're still dealing with Islam. There's a lot of, uh, and the Muslims are still trying to get into Europe at this point. So, um, yeah, this debate's going to go on for a very long time. Still goes on today between Christianity and Islam. Now, the Christian arguments haven't changed that much. They're divided into two ways. First, you discredit Muhammad. Second, we're going to be arguments about the doctrine of God. Who has a better doctrine of God? And that will center on things like the Trinity, the incarnation, divine sovereignty, and worship. So when it comes to discrediting Muhammad, um, and I put discrediting Islam, but I meant Muhammad there, the following points were raised. Muhammad performed no miracles. He gave us no accurate prophecies. So that's one thing that goes against him. Muhammad testified that Jesus was sinless, yet the Quran tells us Muhammad was a sinner that needed to be forgiven. So if he's the greatest of the prophets, why are in his own words as he presenting Jesus as greater? Muhammad's revelations match biblical demonic um, possessions. You know, when he falls down and foams from the mouth, that is like a, demon, a demoniac that Jesus heals. Um, so it's not God talking to, uh, to Muhammad. It's not an angel, it's a demon. And then they'd say, Muhammad, his character, he married a lot of women for political reasons. And he married a nine-year-old. And so, I mean, his character's not there. He was a very vengeful guy, very violent. Um, and he used religion to make himself wealthy and powerful and for all practical purposes, a king. And then instead of using the good news... Okay, and, and, and the best arguments to spread his religion, it is baked into the cake that it has to be by the sword. Um, his character is far less than Christ, the apostles, any of the prophets. Um, so they'd say, Muhammad, there's just, there's no comparison between your guy and our guys, and especially our main guy, Christ. And when it comes to the doctrine of God, uh, very simple. When it comes to the Trinity, uh, we would make it clear, Christians would make it clear, you guys keep misunderstanding it. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God. And they just weren't understanding how you could have one essence and three persons. The, the one hypostasis and the, the, the um, or excuse me, the, the one uh, usia, if you will, and the three hypostases. They, they didn't understand that. And they, they didn't understand that the Trinity was Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Most of them thought it was Father, Mary, Jesus. You know, so they had the, the Trinity completely wrong. And no matter how you tried to explain it to them, it would go over the head because they were so fixed on the Unitarianism. But the Christian explanation of the oneness and the threeness, it logically works. They just weren't willing to accept that. As far as the incarnation goes, we, uh, again, the Chalcedonian Creed, He's the second person of the Trinity. He added humanity to himself. That's how he's the son of God, but God, you know, it's all stuff that can make sense, um, but that would go over their heads. One thing um, that he would do or that the Christians would do is point out that look at what the Quran says. It says Christ was more than a prophet. Your Quran even calls him the word of God. That is a, a, a direct way of saying he's God. So you guys weren't even careful in your own revelations. To, to edit that stuff out. Um, you know, the funny thing is, there was one time I was debating a Muslim when we were out evangelizing. <laughs> this, this is kind of comical. So I made a Trinitarian argument, the one in many argument, and uh, it, it went over his head. 
Um, but it disproved him, and he's like, he's like, man, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I just, you know, and and I tried to explain it multiple times, and was showing him how it works, how his doesn't work. It doesn't solve the one and many problem. And again, it went over his head. And then we started arguing about languages. And then, you know, where I actually got him, you know, because he was a close talker, you know, so I'm smelling. I'm like, dude, I'm like, you're drunk, aren't you? And he's like, maybe. (laughs) And I said, in Islam, you would get kicked out of your religion for drinking. And then he's like, his head went down, and pretty much that ended the debate. I ended up getting him on his moral failures, but it still didn't bring him to Christ. Um, I did try to turn around like, hey, in Jesus, there's forgiveness of your drunkenness, but he wasn't having it. Um, So a couple other things. Uh, The doctrine of God continued in terms of divine sovereignty. Um, Their view of fatalism makes God the author of evil. Our view of God's sovereignty doesn't. That's a big problem. Like, your God created evil. Um, he's deficient. Um, your idea of God's deficient. Now, on worship, we had a little bit harder of a time because it was sort of hard to defend against the charge of idolatry. There were so many icons, and they were bowing to the icons and venerating them, and it was clear that they venerated Mary. And so, like, what do you say to that? I mean, to them, it's going to look exactly like what it looks like. And, and just to throw this out there, Mariolatry grew from what started as respect, just really respecting her as the Theotokos, the, the one who, who bore the incarnated Christ, that grew to improper exaltation. Back in the, the day, in the, the early third century, only Tertullian, he was the last one left rejecting the doctrine of perpetual virginity. You know, the rest of the church was like, yeah, she's a virgin forever. Tertullian's like, no. But once he died, there was nobody that said that. So then it became universally accepted that she was perpetually a virgin. And then eventually that grew to say that she was resurrected and ascended like Christ. And then people started writing songs to her and praying to her. You cannot say we're not idolatrous if we're doing that. And so, I mean, now, of course, we as Protestants, we don't do that. But that was going to be a hard charge to defend um, when dealing with Muslims. Um, the only thing Christians could really do is return fire on this one and say, okay, so you're, you're saying that about us, and you say you only worship Allah, but, but let me get this straight. Who are the jinn? Who are the jinn, these genies and these little invisible demons that you guys are casting magic spells toward the moth? You know, you're doing these pagan rituals that come out of Zoroastrianism and Arabic polytheism that predated Islam because you're afraid of these spirits. And so you'll, you'll cast spells. You'll try to bribe these spirits. Who worships? Who, who's the, you say you worship only one God. Sorry, doesn't match your experience. And so I guess if they get them on the Mary thing, that's what you need to respond back with. Well, you are hypocrites, you and your gin. Um, and so that's, that's more or less how they argued back. So to this day, when Christians debate Muslims, we point out Muhammad's character flaws, the false prophets, the contradictions in the Quran, and we show that Christianity is just a vastly superior theological, metaphysical, philosophical, coherent worldview in every single way. It just is. There's no comparison. That's why in Islam, they can't question it. Uh, Again, I grew up with some Muslim friends, and one of them, when he questioned his dad in college, was disowned just for questioning the Quran. You know, and his dad's a smart guy. He was a a cardiologist. Um, But his son said, this one part of the Quran doesn't make sense. You're not my son anymore. 
Um, now, a while later, he repented and became his son again, <laughs> you know, but um, you're not encouraged to discuss the faith, to work out these these inconsistencies. And Christianity, it's different. We talk about it, we debate it, we have creeds that really place it all together for us because we believe that truth is going to be truth and we're not afraid of questioning it. But anyhow, let me close with a conclusion. The rise of Islam posed an enormous threat and challenge to Christianity. Through conquest, it effectively destroyed three of the four patriarchates in Eastern Christianity. To this day, the most venerable cities and churches of the early church are gone. In their place exists a society with no memory of the Christianity that once flourished there. Due to Islam's anti-conversion laws and the harshness of the penalty, evangelization of Muslims is still the most difficult task in the world right now that faces the church. The sword has been an effective tool in the spread of Islam, and it's effective in protecting them from our evangelists or missionaries. Um, Historically, the Western Franks halted their conquests. And by the way, when the Christians invade their lands in the Crusades, I I took an Islamic civilization class upper division class when I was in college working on my history degree. And uh, we had to read a book written by a chronicler, not a modern book. It's an ancient Islamic book called Crusades Through Arab Eyes. And they identified all their enemies as Franks. And if you think about it, this was like when they stopped calling themselves Franks, you know, but the Muslims still saw them as Franks because they knew who was it that stopped their conquest to begin with the Franks. And then when the people from those same lands are now coming in and taking this land back, they're like, these Franks, you know, these Franks. Uh, <clears throat> so Christians have, uh, <laughs> have effectively used the same apologetic arguments against Islam to this day. Uh, and so anyway, the Islamic invasions, the decline of Byzantium, the ascendancy of the papacy, these are all going to provide the conditions for the period of the Christian Crusades where the Western Church tries to take back former Christian lands from the Muslim kingdoms. I'm not going to get to that next week because there's a couple more things I want to hit before we get to those first, that first crusade. Um, I want to hit uh, the various religious orders like the Franciscans, Dominicans, all that kind of stuff. Other ways that the Pope um, increased his powers you know, and stuff like that. That way, and, and maybe even talk a little bit about the Viking invasions, which was awful, but eventually those Vikings become Christians. They then become the navy for us to be able, for the West to be able to launch those crusades. So there's a couple things I have to hit maybe in a lesson, one lesson, and then we'll hit the crusades. But other than that, that is where we will stop, and I will take questions in one minute. Okay.